If you could open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 27, Acts chapter 27. Now, it's going to be super important that every single person has a Bible open in front of you. And if there is some reason that you maybe were not able to bring your Bible to this service, then we're going to encourage you to grab a Bible that's in front of the pew, in front of you in the back of that pew, and open up to Acts chapter 27. That's in the New Testament. If you ever forget where any of these books of the Bible are, there's a, uh, a t- like a table of contents in the front of your Bible. You can locate it that way. And if you're watching this sermon from home or on a podcast listening to it, if it's possible, have your Bible open. If you're not driving, I would encourage you to have your Bible open as well. And we're going to look in Acts chapter 27. I think it's one of the most vivid chapters in the entire book of Acts. I'm pretty sure you're going to agree with me by the end of this message. And I've often said, and I really want to get everybody's attention, so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. And this is for people who are young. This is for people who are not so young. First of all, take your phone, if you would, and turn it to mute. That's really important. So if you can mute your phone, you don't need to turn it off. Just mute it if you would, please do that right now. And if you are uh, tempted right now to play games on your phone or to check sports scores on your phone, I'm going to encourage you, really pay attention to this message because I think a lot of us are going to be able to really profit from this. I've often said in life, you are either in a storm And by that, I mean a difficulty in life, a trial in life, something that is beyond your ability to weather it on your own. If you're either in a storm or you have come out of one recently, but I want to tell you likely another one is blowing its way into your life. You're either coming out of a storm or you're in one. Or if you've got a bit of a ceasefire, a bit of a lull in the life of weather, there's a storm that's probably heading your way. That is the way of life. And the storm of all storms is about to blow into the Apostle Paul's life. And we're going to get a front row seat. You're going to feel the winds howling. You're going to hear the waves crashing. I think you're going to feel the or sense the, uh, the salt spray on your face. You're going to feel the fear and the terror of what's going to happen in the Apostle Paul. And we're going to learn some valuable lessons for the storms that blow into our lives as well. We're all going to face them. So if you're young, I need you to understand something. I know you probably or maybe you can't understand this yet, but you have storms that are going to be heading your way. They are going to be great difficulties in life, and they're going to stink, and you're going to hate them. And if you're older, like I am, at least in the 50s, then you've already tasted some of these storms. And if you're older than I am, then you've experienced a lot of them. And you know with wisdom, these storms are going to threaten to shipwreck your life. How are you going to stay afloat? I mean, even if your ship does go down, which you're going to see in Acts 27, how are you going to make it to the beach? I'm going to give you several points that are going to help you weather your storms in life. And here's the first one. If possible, don't go through your storms alone. Don't go through your storms alone. Now, I want you to look 
in Acts 27 with me. And again, I want all of us in Acts 27. I'm going to, this is a long chapter, and I'm going to take you through it at a whirlwind pace. But I want you to see what is happening with the Apostle Paul. Look what it says in verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Remember, Paul is in Caesarea. He is in prison. He is going to be taken to Rome. It's a long distance away. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Now, so far, you might be thinking, well, I'm not really getting much out of this sermon. I hope it's going to pick up a little bit, but we'll see. But look at that little word, we. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy... Now, this is telling us something. It's telling us that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, has rejoined Paul for this trip. So now it's not just Paul alone. Now it's Paul and Luke who are friends. Luke alone is with me, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4.11, just a short period before he was going to be put to death. So Luke is a faithful, loyal friend who will be with Paul even at the end of his life when he is martyred for his faith in Jesus. Luke's a doctor. And you might be wondering, well, how would, be, how would Luke be allowed to, sh to, uh, to sail on this ship? Well, doctors were of great value to a ship captain or a centurion. He, they would love to have Luke. It's free medical care. Who doesn't like free medical care? But in addition to Luke was Aristarchus from Thessalonica, verse 2. Who is this? This is another friend of Paul's, and he's likely allowed to go on this voyage. He's probably uh, declared himself to be, and it's true that he was Paul's servant. He's going to take responsibility to attend to his needs. That's great news to the Roman cohort. They don't have to take care of Paul. There's a guy that will do it for him, for them. So these two men were Paul's very close friends. Now let me say something really quickly. I'm going to put it in today's language. These are Paul's best friends. Do you have best friends? I really want you to think about that. Do you have best friends that are godly, godly friends? You have no idea how many people tell me they do not have best friends. I had a person in my office two days ago who is going through a life storm, a major life storm. In fact, leaving my office, he went to the hospital and checked in. The last, one of the last things he said to me before he left to the hospital, he goes, Pastor Tim, I just need you to be my friend. You know how many people say that? We have a civilization and a culture dominated by social media, which puts people further apart than ever before. People are looking for friendships. And when the storms in life hit, you're going to need them. You see, a terrible storm is about to hit Paul. And it is no time for him to have fair weather friends. You know, fair weather friends won't sail with you in the storms. Oh, they're your friends until the storms hit. 
I don't know how any Christian endures life's difficulties alone. And I would encourage all of you, I'm going to echo what you heard earlier, that you would join a community group. You know what? I'm going to tell you something about community groups. And this has been true for decades of my life as a pastor. Most of the closest friends that I have are friendships that I developed in community groups. Let me say that again, because I'm not sure that really struck some of you. Most of the closest friends that I have are friendships that developed for me in the midst of community groups. My community group right now has 16 people in it. I count them increasingly some of my closest friends in this church. They are there for me. They pray for me. I am there for them. I pray for them. We pray for each other. We're there for each other. And our website lists all of our groups. Really, it's so simple. Just go to our website, and I would encourage you to join one. Now, here's what I got to tell you. You really need to hear this. Whether you reject this advice or not, it's totally up to you. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you something, if you could trust me, based on 30 years of ministry experience. If you are coming to Cornerstone, and you stay on the periphery, you don't get involved, you don't serve, you don't get into a community group. You just come to Cornerstone, you come to the service, and nobody sees you again for another week. I'm going to tell you, sooner or later, you're going to leave this church, and you're going to find another one where you will do the same thing there, of which eventually you will leave that church. Or you will come to this church once a month, once every few months. Why? Why? What value does church have for you? None. There's no value for you. And there's no value that the church is gaining from you. You have gifts. You have strengths. We need them. But if you sit on the sidelines, the devil will pick you off. He always does this. I've seen it hundreds and hundreds of times. And when that storm hits... You're going to be alone without godly friends around you. That is not a place you want to be. You see, you need friends. You need godly friends to weather your storms. But number two, and we're going to see this very, very clearly, storms may surprise us, but never do they surprise God. Oh, they may surprise us, but they're never going to surprise God. You see, Acts 27 begins with no indication that a shipwrecking storm is on the horizon, and that is the way with storms in life. They almost never come with an early warning system. You don't see them coming. Let's watch this unfold, verse 3. The next day we put in Sidon. That means they sailed to the port at Sidon, the city on the Mediterranean coast. And Julius, he's the centurion, treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. If you understand the Roman guarding system, then you'll understand how shocking this is. If Paul escapes, Julius will be put to death. That's the penalty if you lose a prisoner. They had other prisoners with them on this ship, Paul was not the only prisoner, and Julius was a centurion who led a special group, a special group of soldiers. They were the Augustan cohort. Well, who were they? 
The Augustan cohort was a, an elite group of soldiers whose job it was to protect grain shipments that were coming usually from Egypt to Rome. And you would think, well, why is that so special? Rome can't make it with all the demands, all the food demands. They can't make it without these, these grain shipments. And piracy was rampant on the Mediterranean Sea. Well, this group, the Augustan cohort, expanded. They were also the transport teams for political prisoners and powerful figures. Their job was to get them where they needed to go. See, their presence assured that piracy was not going to be a problem for this trip. I mean, this seems like an idyllic trip, very easy trip. You've got a guard, a group of guards. You've got Paul has the favor of Julius Centurion, and you would think, well, this is just going to be a nice trip to Rome. Except it was late in the sailing season. So they quickly boarded a small port-hopping, coast-hugging ship. This is not going to be a ship that's going to take them across the Mediterranean Sea. This is smaller. This is not for big uh, ocean swells. This is just to get along the coast. They're gonna, they stopped at Sidon. That's 70 miles north of Caesarea. Just a little hop, skip, and a jump. And Julius trusted Paul so much, he gave him shore leave. He said, go visit your friends. That's the, the church at Sidon. And so Luke and Aristarchus and Paul, they go visit their friends, and their friends outfit them for the journey. The, 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 uh, the Roman guards aren't going to give them cold weather gear. The Roman guards aren't going to give them food and money. The church did this. So they go to the church, and the church gives them everything they need for their trip. They were cared for by them. Meanwhile, Julius and the captain are looking for another ship, mainly Julius. He's looking for a ship to be able to get his prisoners to Rome, and they've got to find a ship. An empty ship is a ship losing money, just like the big trucks on today's roads. So the captain is looking for opportunities. The three of them go to the church's Sidon. They get what they need for the voyage, and then they board the next ship. With the favor of the centurion, friends with him, a supporting church in Sidon, Paul had no idea that a storm was about to hit, and it's going to hit with devastating force. But God knew. See, God, friends, is never surprised at what comes into your life. In fact, Christian brother and sister, I want you to look at me for a moment. And if you don't yet believe this, I want you to borrow my faith. I want this to convince you of the truth. And this is only true for Christian brothers and sisters. Or maybe I should say it's especially true for the church. There is no storm in life that will ever reach your shores but that which has gone through the hands of God. He must give permission for a storm to reach you. And if he gives that storm permission, then that storm is ultimately for your good. Now, you got to have faith to believe that. Because some of you, I know your stories, you're suffering. You're in a storm. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? Well, number three, God has a purpose for your storms. 
The group boards this ship in verse four, they put out to sea. And from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus. That means on the south side of the island, out of the winds, because the winds were against us. So lee word is uh, protected from the wind. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia in Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship. This is a big ship. This is going to make it across the Mediterranean Sea. It's a ship of Alexandria. That's a city in Egypt. Sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty at Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion Julius paid more attention to the pilots and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Now, what's going on? Well, they set sail. It's a nine-day trip from Sidon to Myra. Nine days. But they sailed slowly because of headwinds. And just as the Midwest in our country is the breadbasket of America, Egypt is the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. That's where they get their wheat. That's where they get their corn and their grain. And Julius had booked passage on one of the ships that's transporting wheat. Now, why did the captain risk the dangerous seas? Because Rome did this sneaky little thing. As it approached the winter months, of which I'll tell you in a moment, if you got your grain shipment there and you braved those dangerous oceans, they would give the owner of the ship a bonus, and they would divide that among the crew of the boat. So the captain wants to get that bonus. The pilot wants to get that bonus. Julius the centurion wants to get his soldiers, his prisoners rather, to Rome. But the problem was, look at verse 9, it's after the fast. That's the Jewish Day of Atonement. Now it's mid to late October. Why is that date important? Well, sailing was dangerous by September. It was impossible by November. Nobody sailed in November. They docked for the winter until March due to the hurricane in northeastern and the cyclone activity. The pilot was convincing, and the owner was convincing, and the centurion who had the authority to decide. And along with the majority, verse 12, all the crew said, all the soldiers said, let's get to Rome. We want to get back to our families. We want to get that bonus. They said, let's go for it. They ignored Paul's advice, and they decided to sail on. They thought they were going to make it 40 miles to Phoenix. It's on the leeward side, out of the wind, southern side of Crete, meaning the side most protected from the northeastern storms, which was a better place to spend the winter. It seemed like a safe decision. Why? Look at verse 13. The south wind blew gently. Oh, it seemed so nice. 
Just a little cruise out in the Mediterranean. They weighed or pulled up anchor, verse 13, and they sailed along making for the port. Now look at verse 14. What started well quickly turned difficult. And all of a sudden, a tempestuous storm, wind, a northeastern struck. This is a hurricane, friends. The sailors tried every trick they had, but they could not even turn the ship into the wind. The wind was so strong. These wheat transports, these ships, they're up to 140 feet long. They have a beam that is 36 feet wide. They take a draft or they go down into the water 33 feet. They have no rudder. They're steered by two oversized paddles coming out the rear of the boat, one on either side. That's how they steer these ships. They have one mast. It has a large square sail. The square's made out of linens or animal hides. They rip in storms, and then you're not going to make any progress. And if that mast was to rip out of its mount, it's going to put a hole in the hull and sink the ship within minutes. They've got a lifeboat. Normally, it trails the lifeboat behind them. They don't want to take up deck space with the lifeboat, so they just simply pulled the lifeboat behind them, but it was getting overloaded with water. It was threatening to hit the ship. They bring it to the side of the ship, and they begin to use the ship hoist. They bring it up around the outside of the hull and then strap it to the side of the ship. They frapped the ship. You know what frapping the ship means? It means that you took heavy ropes, you pass it under the ship, and then you take a winch and you, you pull it tight. They did it all the way down the hull, trying to keep the ship together. It was threatening to blow apart in the hurricane. And then they began to throw overboard the cargo and then the tackle, all the coils of rope and the, some of the anchors and some of the equipment that the ship needed. They're throwing all of this overboard so that they're lighter. They couldn't see the sun. They couldn't see the stars for days or nights. They were hopelessly lost. In fact, look at verse 20. Luke wrote that all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. They gave up hope. All right, now friends, look at me. Be honest. Have you ever gotten to a place in life where you gave up hope? Have you? That's a terrible place, isn't it? It's a lonely place. It's a very dark place. That's the place they all got to. They abandon hope. They're headed toward the northern coast. The ship is drifting. They cannot control it. The northern coast of Africa was a boneyard for wrecked ships from these northeaster storms. They had no hope of surviving, and that was the purpose of this storm. Did you hear that? Did you just hear that? They had no hope for surviving. And that was God's purpose for this storm. See, I'm wondering if you ever gotten to that place where you have given up hope. Do you not know you're exactly where God wants you? See, that's the place of your miracle. That's the place where your faith is going to start to live. 
You see, God will often allow a storm to rage in your life until you give up every effort to save yourself. He will often let us try it our way, only to finally give those ways up and surrender in faith to him. And that is a very, very broken place. Now listen, some of us have gotten these storms that have blown in, and some of us have given up hope. Now listen, and ended in misery and anger and blaming for everybody around us, blaming for God who brought that storm in. If that's where you are, you are not at brokenness, you are at misery. And they are a long way apart. You see, when that storm gets you to give up hope and you come into brokenness, that is the place of faith. See, that is the place of trust. That is the place of blaming nobody. That is the place of holding out your hands and surrendering to God and saying, God, I have nowhere else to turn but to you. And that is the purpose of your storm. You see, if you can manage your way through the storms to safety, if you can figure out a way to make it through your storms, you're never going to know grace. You will never learn the wisdom of surrender and trust in God, nor will you know the truth. You want to know why sometimes our storms rage on and on and on? Because you're fighting brokenness. You are resisting surrender. And God, if he gets you through this one, he's going to bring another one. Because something has got to get you to the place of surrender. You have too much pride. I have too much self-confidence. Now watch what happens. Number four, expect God to give opportunities to witness. See, your greatest opportunities to witness, friends, are going to be right in the middle of your storm. They were carried 476 miles from Cauda. All hope was lost. Now, did you hear that? Almost 500 miles. That's from here to North Carolina, High Point, North Carolina. Drifting, and this, that storm went on and on and on. At average, they, they've charted this out. They know this. You would travel 36 miles a day in the grip of one of these hurricanes. 14 days, you can do the math. This is 500 miles that they've been drifting. And Paul says, men, verse 21, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Now listen, this is not an I told you so. It really isn't. It's more, now will you listen to me? Now are you the place of all hope being lost? Now will you turn to God and trust? And he goes on, now, yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. In other words, yeah, we're going to lose the ship, but nobody's going to die. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. See, listen, during a storm, they have lost hope. This is when God speaks. 
This is when God wants to save. This is when God wants to turn the hearts of the unsaved to him. But who's going to testify? Who will he speak to? Who will he visit? Who will he give a revelation to that will share it and turn the eyes of the lost to the one who gives life? Paul said, I'll be that one. God sent him an angel and the angel said, do not be afraid, friends. That's just code. That's, that's angel speak for Paul. I know you're afraid. But you don't need to be, for God will get you to Rome to the Caesar. And verse, uh, look at this again. And God has granted you all those who sail with you. God granted Paul's prayer. And he had been praying for all of them. This is what godly people do. He was praying for other people in the middle of the storm. Hey, he's saved. He dies, he goes to heaven. Where are all these unbelievers going to go? They're not going to heaven. So he's praying for them. He's not panicking. Oh, he's afraid. Who wouldn't be? But he's not paralyzed by that fear. Everybody else is paralyzed. And isn't this the nature? Now, friends, think about this in your own storms. Isn't it the nature of your difficulties in life and the storms that blow in? Don't you tend to bring your eyes and your vision to you and to the predicament, to the difficulty that you're in, and all of a sudden that storm becomes even bigger and you get bitter and you get resentful and you get anger and you lose hope and you fall into despair? That, didn't, that wasn't what Paul did. He kept his eyes on God first and others second. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. See, I get a lot of people, and I mean a lot of people, that say, Pastor Tim, I need to get in and talk to you. And they come in and they talk to me, and I love it. I love it that they trust me. It's a privilege to be trusted with people sharing their lives. And they come in and they tell me the storm that they are in and the struggle that they're going through. And one of the things that I do almost every single time is I work to try to get their eyes on other people. And if they can successfully turn their eyes on others, all of a sudden, you know, that storm doesn't really rage as bad as I thought it did. The darker your night, the brighter you can shine, Christian brother and sister, and your witness will shout the glory of God. Number five, faith in God does not alleviate responsibility. Faith in God does not alleviate responsibility. Imagine if Paul had a let go, let God attitude, which I'm telling you is thoroughly unbiblical. But just think, if he had a let go and let God attitude, he just sat in a bunk or sat in a corner on the deck and did nothing, did not encourage anybody, did not pray for anybody, didn't, you know, God's sovereign, he's going to do what he wants. I totally float along with the boat, I'm not worried Look what happens. The captain's not leading. The pilot's not leading. The centurion's not leading. They're all paralyzed by fear. They've given up hope. They know they're going down. So Paul, the prisoner, steps up, and he shows us what godly leadership does and how it emerges in the storms of life. We're at the 14th night. There's a reef that was drawing near. They can hear it. They can hear the surf pounding in the middle of the night, and the sailors, verse 31, try to escape with the lifeboat. Here's what they do. 
They say, well, you know what? We got to go drop anchors and you can't do that from the ship. You got to go out and sit out in that lifeboat and we'll take the anchors and the rope with us and we'll drop them safe distances from the church or from the church, from the boat so that we're not ripping the hull to pieces. Paul knew what they were doing. They were getting in that lifeboat. They're going to abandon everybody else. They're going to make it to shore and let everybody else go down with the ship. And Paul alerts Julius. He intervenes. It's not let go, let go. You got responsibility in your storms. God promised they would all be saved, but you must obediently trust me. You can't steal the lifeboat to save your own skin and let everybody else perish. See, God always requires obedience to his word, and being in a life storm is no different. And let me tell you what I hear a lot at church. I hope you're all listening to this. This is urgently critical that you hear this. I get so many people telling me, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. They're doing drugs. They're drinking to oblivion every night. They're having sex before marriage. They won't work even though they can work. They rely on everybody else to hand out. That's a person that says, I have faith, but I will not take responsibility. And you will shipwreck. You will shipwreck. Faith does not exclude responsibility. Faith says, God, you will show a way, and I will step up in right obedience. And I will go get work if I'm able to work. And I will get help and accountability and friends that'll help me quit drinking. And I will get people to help me stop doing drugs. And I will get accountability to not have sex before marriage. I will be obedient to you, God. And God says, I will get you safely to shore. See, Paul's stepping up. He's urging everyone to eat. Look at verse 34. They've gone 14 days without food. They're in suspense, meaning they're so afraid nobody ate for 14 days. They needed to eat. They needed strength. They're about to go in the waters. They're about to swim to the shore. And so Paul says, you know what? Let me remind you how to eat. So he picks up some bread and eats it. And then after giving thanks to the Lord, look what happens in verse 36. All were encouraged and ate. And then they threw the rest of the grain overboard, verse 38, so that the ship would ride higher and hopefully make it over the reef. And then they're going to discover the greatest truth of all. And it's our last one. There is one anchor in your life that will never be cut away. There is one anchor in your life that will never be cut away. Look at verse 39. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. They cut all the anchors off and left them right there in the Mediterranean Ocean. At the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, remember those rear paddles? Then hoisting the foresail made out of animal skins, one big square sail. Actually, this is not the mast sail. This is the foresail. To the wind, they made for the beach. 
So the day dawned, though you would hardly know it because of the storm that is still raging, but they saw an island, and that island they would later learn was the island called Malta. They cut away the anchors, they raised the sail they had left, they made for the beach, and then they ran onto the reef. Stuck. And all those waves were pounding the stern, that's the back of the boat, and it is starting to come apart. The ship is disintegrating around them. They know they got to get in the water. They know they got to swim for it. But the soldiers said, listen, if we lose any of the prisoners, we're going to be killed. We got to kill the prisoners right here on deck. And Julius the centurion hears about it, but he wanted to save Paul, so he canceled the order. 276 sailors, soldiers, prisoners, and passengers. That's how many were on that boat. They jumped into the water. They each made it to shore just as God had said would happen. Now think about this. Did God part the seas as he did with Moses and they walked to shore on dry ground? No. Did God still the storm instantly like Jesus did on the Sea of Galilee? No. The storm had not yet stopped. Yet God was every bit present, controlling the storm, guiding them hundreds of miles, 476 of them across the sea to this tiny little island for a reason that we're going to see next week. And it's going to be amazing. And Hebrews 6 says, Therefore we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong, listen, and trustworthy anchor for our souls. There is one anchor that will never be cut away. And that is the anchor of hope. It will hold fast. Listen, I know some of you are going through terrible, terrible storms. I've heard about it. I know you've told me, some of you. And I know others of you are going through terrible storms. I have no idea you're in. And they are powerful and they are difficult. And it feels like you're going to go down. It feels like God doesn't either care or he doesn't know or both. And you're dealing with fear, you're dealing with doubt, you're dealing with loneliness, you're dealing with grief, you're dealing with anger and despair. But I'm going to tell you that Acts 27 is your chapter. It's your chapter. And it's all of our chapters because storms are coming and they're going to strike and each of us will be ships on the seas, and it's going to feel like we're heading towards the rocks. But I want to remind you one more time. Here's what we learn. Here's what we learn from Acts 27. Don't go through those storms alone. You got to get friends. They got to be godly friends. Storms might be surprising you, but they will never surprise God. In fact, there is no storm that will ever touch your shores, the shores of your life. They have not yet gone through the hands of God. He has allowed it for a reason, and that's number three. He has a purpose for your storm. He has a purpose. 
And part of that purpose is to expect God to give opportunities to witness. But I'm going to tell you, the grander one is to get you to a place of brokenness and surrender. Finally, turning to him and saying, you are God, not me. I will live obediently by faith to you. You're my Lord and Savior. See, faith in God doesn't alleviate responsibility. You got to swim. You got to eat. You got to step up and live. You got to get accountability. You got to say no to sin by the grace of God. And all the while, you got to remember no Christian will ever have every anchor cut away. There will always be one. And that's the anchor of your hope. You have a good God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for what we've learned in this incredibly vivid chapter. Lord, it is powerful. And Lord, I pray that we would learn from the Apostle Paul and his example and Luke and Aristarchus. Lord, they had their friendship. Woe to the one that goes through a storm in life alone. Lord, I pray that every person listening to this message, Lord, either at this church or another church, Lord, finds a way to get involved, become part of the church, and get friends. But, Lord, not only should we never go through life alone, uh, storms alone, Lord, you have a purpose for them. And your hand is on them. We don't see them coming. Storms don't have an early warning system. But you have a purpose for them. And part of that purpose, in fact, a grand narrative of that purpose, Lord, is to bring us to a place of surrender so that we turn to you in trust. Lord, I pray that we would remember we've got to be responsible. We've got to obey. There is no let go and let God. There is trust in our good God and do what is in our power to do because there is one anchor that will never be cut away and that is the anchor of hope. Lord, may we know that anchor is there. May we feel the rope to it and feel how steady our lives are. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.